Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska is produced with support from the University of Alaska Fairbanks Communication and Journalism Department. UAF Kojo, tell great stories. Welcome to the season five premiere of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. In this episode, we'll hear Mike Speaks tell a story about an ambitious cross-country trek he went on with his friend Chip Barker in Denali National Park in the 1980s. It was a trip they only survived due to some generous help from above. And we're like looking at each other and he's flying around. He comes back around again, same thing, low and slow. And then out of the out of the cockpit, this red stuff sack, you know, with orange stream. It looked like some kind of tropical bird of paradise. Somebody just shot with a 12 gauge. <laughs> Poof! Right to the snow, right there in front of us. We opened that bag, there were four Budweiser's in there. The Starving Around Denali Expedition. Up next, on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. In 1984, Mike Speaks and his friend Chip Barker came up with a plan to go on a cross-country trip from Ruth Glacier near Talkeetna to Peters Glacier, ultimately ending up at a mine near Kantishna. Undeterred by the fact that neither of them had ever been on a glacier before, they spent the winter preparing for their trip, even handcrafting their own supplies, including fashioning their own tent. On March 16, 1984, the pair packed up their supplies and headed off to Talkeetna to meet up with their pilot, Cliff Hudson. Cliff was going to fly them out for the start of their journey and then airdrop supplies to them along the way. Mike Speaks shared this story at our April 2019 live event in Fairbanks. Here's Mike. Back in those days, everything was Main Street, Talkeetna back then, and the Hudson's place was right there across the street from the Fairview. The airstrip was right there across the street from the Fairview, and the, the Hudson's, the little Quonset hut there, they had a little diner there, Sparky Burgers. Sparky was the name of their dog that that they had, so he was in charge of the kitchen, I'm sure. <laughs> but we drove down and we pitched our tent by the, the airstrip there, which was just the dirt strip there, right opposite the Fair, Fairview. And we got with Cliff to discuss our ambitions and what he could do for us and those sorts of things. And we got out our maps and we started looking at the route there and we were showing him exactly where we were hoping to go and he just started laughing. And just like, you boys ever seen that? And I'm like, Cliff, we ain't seen nothing. So he says, well, the first bit of advice that he gave us was, well, you boys might consider going another way. <laughs> and we're like, okay, we'll take that. We'll take that as advice. And we, we logged it in. We Plan B, that's what we figured it'd be anyway. So we talked and we discussed and we got it down and so the deal with Cliff was that yeah he would fly us in to the Ruth where we were going to spend a couple days there at the beautiful little mountain house which is a little six-sided metal building used to be it's quite a an elaborate place these days I think but we were going to stay there a couple days acclimate do some more of our practice before we took off on our trip and on the way Cliff decided he'd fly our whole route for us give us a good look at it so that we could see he particularly was worried about this one spot of the Tokusitna where they're on the, on the map, the contour lines look quite nice. It looked like we'd just go right up that ice fall thing there. But <laughs> he kind of he was like I said, you boys might want to go another way, was what all he kept saying. But, but he figured we knew what we were doing. He didn't know any better either, because we didn't know what we were doing. 
but we had ambition. And uh, we, we basically, you know, had Cliff on our side. So he was going to fly the route with us. And not only that, he was going to uh, eventually deposit two sheetrock buckets full of resupply food on the East Fork of the Cahilton. This is still mid-March, so there's not a lot of traffic. No one had even been to the roof that season yet. No one was out at the uh, Cahilton airstrip starting that official climbing season these days, and then still was like April 1st. But uh, we basically, you know, figured it was all going to work out. And so lucky St. Patty's Day on the 17th, we loaded up Cliff's little orange Cessna 185, and, and uh, we, we uh, got out of there, and we took off, and we did. We, we flew. We got a good look at the Cahiltna where there was a, a route down where on our maps it had looked looked okay, and then we flew that Tokositna zone, and it was a real eye-opener, because it was this, that beautiful little contour lines, it was this gleaming ice blue, ice fall active as could be, and uh, so we were already thinking plan B's might come into fact, but we weren't sure. So eventually we're, and then over to the roof where we're gonna land there, so prior to going, you know, we were loading up the plane, and there was enough room in there, and, and Cliff gets out his little hatchet and sends us over there chopping down spruce trees. So we get like a dozen and two, three-foot-tall spruce trees and clam them in there. It's like we were in a Christmas tree parking lot flying into the, to the roof, but it's obviously what it was. It's flat light. It's dead light. And so we're over there on the roof flying in low and got the door open, and Cliff's calling it, and we're tossing trees out. And eventually we do. We get this nice little 600-foot zone of uh, landing zone. And these spruce trees were the running lights, basically. And so Cliff comes back around, puts us down on there, no problem. And we get out. We get all of our equipment out. And very quickly, Cliff's taxiing away. And then we're standing there. And we watch that orange Cessna just, like, fly away. And it's just, like, forever flying away. <laughs> It just turned into this little tiny speck, and then it banked to the right and went into the Great Gorge and down the roof, and we looked at each other and looked around, and that was like the moment of the scope of this operation <laughs> finally dawned on us. Our goal was to go light and fast. We were a little ahead of our time. We were light. <laughs> we just weren't fast. <laughs> And we figured the whole thing was on, on paper, it looked easy. It's like 100 miles, you know, 30 miles as a crow flies if he went straight through the mountains, you know. And, and we thought, well, it, if everything's good, we can, we can be in Cantition in 15 days, we thought. We kind of figured we'd, we'd, we'd gear up for a 20-day trip or something of that nature. But that was an extremely stormy uh, year. That was, in fact, the year of the first winter ascent by the famed Japanese explorer, Naomi Yumura. Unfortunately, he disappeared on the way down and was never seen again, blown off the mountain by the storms. So it was a stormy season. We were kind of, you know how it is up here when you sort of bet against the weather, you know, or you bet that the weather's gonna be on your side and we might have lost that bet somewhere along the way. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but we did decide to go for it. We left a little four-pack of Top Ramen there at that little hut in case we had to come back for it. And uh, we took our packs, loaded to the gills. And um, oh, and the one thing, one other important thing I forgot to mention there with Cliff, the other bit of advice he gave us was to hear, take this, ground-to-air radio. 
And we were like no fools there, and we kind of like, neither one of us had room for a pack of chewing gum in our backpacks, but this radio looked like a good idea and a spare battery, and that thing did save us, without a doubt. So there we were with all our gear in foul weather, and we took off the first obstacle, Pittock Pass, scooting underneath this giant ice wall, which had the day before just obliterated our tracks with a giant avalanche because we broke trail up to that pass to take a look at it, you know, that was going to be our direction. And sure enough, we, we just watched this cloud just erase all of our tracks there. So we scampered right through that zone without, you know, taking pictures or anything like that. And we couldn't see, which was good, you know, because it was, it was not a, a pretty sight. But we did make over Piddock Pass, and we did find a camp there. And eventually the weather improved, and we were able to get onto the Tokositna. And Cliff was right. We should have gone another way because we, waste, we wasted almost a week of food and fuel and time trying to get through this icefall. We, we went directly into it, but it was massive and it was active. It was like the kumbu, but we didn't have aluminum ladders and sherpers and things like that. In fact, we had one rope and three ice screws. That was our kit for this trip and all of our homemade gear, which we were confident in. <laughs> but we did. We wound up striking out on this icefall zone here, and our last resort was this big end run around the whole mountain that was pinching off and forcing this thing in, and that, that was like our only hope was, well, it's longer, and it was steeper, and it was a bigger climb, and um, we went for that, and we, we busted out of there that morning after dwindling our food supply down to not much. We knew the four packs of Top Ramen were behind us, but we had a little bit and we were still going for it. And we knew Cliff had our buckets of food and they were gonna be at the East Fork when we got there. So we, we still felt pretty good about things. And we took off and wound up, it was a substantial uh, climb actually. We, we spent a, a long part of that day front pointing up steep blue ice. And eventually it got dark and we didn't make it up all the way up out of there. And we were just kind of like, we were pretty proud of ourselves for the one thing at the gas station there outside of Talkeetna, we bought some of those little, two of those little keychain flashlights, you know, you squeeze. <laughs> so as darkness is falling us, we got our little keychain flashlights in our mouth and we're, we're, we, we found a spot where it wasn't sheer. There was nowhere to pitch a tent, absolutely. You couldn't scrape out a platform anywhere near big enough for a tent, but we did find one little bit of slope that was gradual enough that we dug this little cave. And we're gonna, we're gonna spend the night in this little cave. And in, in the end, we did get back up in there. It was kind of like being poolside, sitting in some chase you know, lounger that wouldn't go back. And the umbrella was right down over us like this. <laughs> and we had this huge view of the whole Toka Setna, Mount Hunter, everything was right there. And of course, the storm cycle starts back up. And so we spent two nights in that little cave. Basically, there's there was nowhere else for us to go. We were in that cave. And that first night, it was probably six or eight hours into the big storm when the first, you know, the big cliff above us started shedding all of its powder uh, uh, sloughs of avalanche. And they would just come right over the top of our little, our little cave and seal it off, you know, with our feet sticking out. <laughs> 
So we kind of dealt with that, and we got our little tarp, and we sort of made our little, little cave a little bit more improved. And, but over the course of that two days, I, I bet we had at least a dozen major slides just seal us off, except for our feet sticking out. But the storm broke. We had one package of Knorr split pea soup left. We saved it thinking we'd either need it to get back to the top ramen or we were going to need it to get up the last of this, this climb that we had to do. And it did. It broke up nice and sunny. And, you know, I, that, that whole time, this was 10 days later now, finally. We were, after everything, it was 10 days later from when we had left on this little bit. And three days later, since we started the climb, we finally finished it. We came out of our little cave in the blinding light, and it was just like, oh, my gosh. But we did. We, we cramponed up the last little bit, and we got up to a wall of snow. It must have been four feet of snow that we had to start breaking trail in. So now we drop your packs. You take turns breaking trail. Come back, get the packs. Come back, drop that. We did that like once. And then we're standing there thinking, you know, this is not looking good. And those top ramen back there are starting to sound really good. And it was right then we heard it. And there came that orange 185 around the shoulder of this big old mountain. And it was Cliff. He was flying around to look for us and see how we were doing. And the radio comes out real quick. We got the radio. Cliff, is that you? And he's like, yeah, how you boys doing? Been a hell of a storm, isn't it? And they're like, yeah, been a hell of a storm. <laughs> but we're, we're doing okay, except we're out of food. We're wondering, maybe you got a suggestion for us. You know, and he said, no problem, I got you buckets of food right here. So, of course, that's, that's how things would work with a good, you know, customer service individual like Cliff Hudson. <laughs> he wasn't going to fly out there without our food, you know, and, and, and he, it was the time that we thought we might be at the point where we were expected to find our buckets of food. So, Cliff came looking for us. He was uh, flying around just joy riding around and there we were and we were finally in a spot where we could relax because we did get off of that head wall and we did get up on this gigantic plateau of gigantic crevasses avalanche spires here mount hunter was right here we're still trying to get to kahiltna which you know we figure we you know that's where our food is but then cliff shows up with these buckets of food and it's like awesome cliff just any either one of those buckets and some fuel have you got some fuel and he's like yeah i got your fuel and uh, he does, he comes in, does that thing low and slow, and out comes this bucket of food with some orange survey ribbon tied to it and poof into the snow there, you know, and then two cans, of, two gallons of Blazo. And so there we were, we've got food, we've got, you know, we've got hope. Our little candle, our glimmer of hope started burning again after our desperate situation. And we're like, thank you, Cliff. You can't believe how thankful we are. You are the man. And he's like, yeah, yeah, well, good luck. But hold on. I got something else for you. And we're like looking at each other. And he's flying around. He comes back around again. Same thing, low and slow. And then out of the, out of the cockpit, this red stuff sack, you know, with orange streamers. Looked like some kind of tropical bird of paradise. Somebody just shot with a 12-gauge. <laughs> Poof. Right to the snow, right there in front of us. We opened that bag, there were four Budweiser's in there. We'll have the exciting conclusion to Mike Speaks' story in a moment. This is Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. 
Have you ever noticed that uproarious laughter in the background of all the funny stories we have on Dark Winter Nights? That's the sound of our incredible live audience at the Dark Winter Nights events we do every fall and spring here in Fairbanks. They are truly the most fun and awesome audience I've ever seen. And if you'd like to join them, our next live event is coming up on Saturday, November 23rd at 7 p.m. in Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium. We're recruiting storytellers right now, so if you'd like to share your true story from Alaska on Dark Winter Nights, there's more information at darkwinternights.com. That's also where you can subscribe to our podcast or hear every episode of Dark Winter Nights we've ever produced, which is quite a lot now. You could binge listen for the whole car trip from Fairbanks to Anchorage, probably. After the timely supply run by Cliff, Mike Speaks and Chip Barker found themselves weathered in again for a couple of days. When the weather broke, they made their way to the top of the ridge and part of the way down the other side before finding themselves weathered in once more for four more days. Here's Mike. So all of that happened and all of that rolled through and even after Cliff had given us the, the bucket of food, we were running out again and it was obvious to us we got two options coming up now. If we can get to this airstrip, we're going to wind up having to fly back to Talkeetna, and that's going to be the end of it, instead of going on and, and to Kentishna, unless we can get Cliff to do a little food shop for us. So we've got the radio like handy, and it is April 1st or 2nd that particular day. And sure enough, planes are flying. The first plane over, we got them on the radio, is K2 Aviation made comment about wanting to get a message to Cliff, and they're like, no problem, Cliff's right behind us. He'll be there soon. And he was. He, that little orange Cessna cruising along, and he was bringing in two groups that day, a West Rib climb and a West Buttress climb. And uh, he was just like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, it shouldn't be a problem. We'll see what we can do. You boys doing okay, and yep, we'll see what we can do. So that little candle of hope was burning even brighter now. And so we're pushing and we're going, we're gonna, we're gonna make as much time. We, we made a lot of miles up that particular day on the Cahilton. And it was later in the day, Cliff was coming back on one of his final runs and <clears throat> we could see him and we, we could see he was looking for us. He was flying low and coming around. So we got the radio out again and, and uh, he's flying over and we're, Cliff, we're over here. And he's, he sees us and he comes over and like, yep, yep I got some food for you guys. And so he does the same thing. Orange Cessna coming in low and slow, and this burlap sack comes out. And so all that food came out, and then this other little, this little bottle rocket came shooting out, and it was a sock. And it had this long, you know, orange streamer on the end of it. It's a pew, poof, pack of Marlboros just landed. <laughs> landed right there by Chip, you know. And so he's firing up a cigarette, and I got the radio, and it's like Cliff, Definitely, you are the man. And, and we knew it. We were going to tell everybody. And he's like, he's chuckling. He had a little chuckle. He didn't really laugh, but he chuckled a lot. And he's like, yep, yep, okay. Well, you boys, good luck. And hold on, I got something else for you. And Chip and I are looking. This is my buddy Chip Barker again. We've been friends forever. We're looking at each other, and we're both thinking, Budweiser? Because <laughs> he brought us everything else we had, but he comes around low and slow again, and that same bird of paradise comes flying out and psh, poof right to the ground. Two Sparky burgers with French fries. <laughs> Cliff, you're the man for sure. And a dozen packets of ketchup. We were eating those like those fancy, you know, goo packets, you know. It was like. <laughs> 
So now we're feeling, we're feeling a lot better about things. Thanks to Cliff Hudson and his knowing what to do and we've got our food and we push hard and, and we get to this airstrip, you know, in the evening and there's some tents over here and another couple of tents over here and nobody around. They're all in their tents and Chip and I, we pitch our little homemade tent and we, we go to sleep. We wake up in the morning and there's just like 12 people standing around looking at our little tent and we come out of there and they're like, where the hell did you guys come from, you know? <laughs> No planes, no nothing, but then we got to hang out with the RMI, Rainier Mountaineering Institute, uh, their trip leader, Eric Simonson, quite a famous guy. He was the guy that organized the expedition that went to Everest and found George Mallory on the side of the mountain. Conrad Anker found him, but Eric was the guy that put that all together. So he was, he was enter entertained by our little homemade outfit. He said, he said we looked like a, we were dressed for a walk out to the woodpile. I wrote that in my journal. <laughs> But he thought our homemade tent was incredible. He couldn't believe that, you know, that, that we were, had built this little thing and it was this center pole tent that didn't have a center pole. We had this unique way of having an external frame holding it all together. And it was kind of a genius situation. And so we were hanging out with all these guys and all their bright clothes and all their almond roca and hot jello drinks. We hated to leave them, <laughs> but in the end, in the end, we had to because we were committed now. We had food and we were going to make it. We, were, we just knew we were going to make it, especially after what we'd been through. We felt pretty good that we could, we were going we to pull this off. And so we did. We wound up hanging out there a couple days and, you know, kind of got our strength back and got our feet less achy. And we started off again and, and got up and over Cahilton Pass and then down on the other side, just instantly into the shade and the cold of the north side of the Denali and the Wickersham wall and everything. And so we're down on Peter's Glacier and we still think we can survive this cold because that's what we've done a bunch of years of. Even though it was, you know, 1984, uh, we'd been around for a couple of winters and we, we felt good about being able to hold up to the cold and, and stuff. So we just had this final, you know, obstacle of just getting to Kantishna but to do that, there was one more obstacle that we had to go through, and it's a little place on the map known as Tluna Ice Falls. And uh, it, was, it was a big area, and we were, you know, it, from the beginning, Chip, 6'6", 240, me, 5'10", 170, I was the crevasse locator, he was the anchor. Basically, we, we traded out breaking trail and route finding, but sometimes in the dicey situations, you know, I would probe, and he would belay, and we were in the process of doing that. We had this one little swaggy zone here that we needed to cross it, and so we dropped the packs. He's got a little belay going. I'm on my skis, walking out with my long ice axe, probing, probing. I'm just out there, and I'm, and I'm about to announce, I think this is okay, when the trap door went, just like this. And it was about a six-foot by 10-foot trap door that dropped right out from under me, and uh, chips on belay, there's a period of about an hour. I'm not really sure what he was doing, and he's not really sure what I was doing when the whole thing was going on. But in the end, I wound up like a little spider. I, can, I still remember it. It was like 20 feet to one wall and about 15 feet to one wall, and it was like 80-foot drop down to the just icy blue wedge where the Grim Reaper, I could see him down there. <laughs> 
he was looking up with a big grin, and I was hanging on that rope, looking up at these two cantilevered, you know, snow bridges and a six by eight opening to the sky. And so we had practiced everything, and so there it was. I, and I was a Boy Scout. I was prepared. I had some cords in my pocket, and I got my skis off, and I lashed my skis to my chest, and then I got my Jumars. These are the mechanical ascending devices that you can put on a rope and, you know, you can, you can move right up that rope. All the rock climbers do that sort of thing. So I've, I've got those on, and I'm up to where my ropes are disappearing into this four-foot wall of fresh snow. And I'm there, and Chip's, you know, like, well, are you okay? I'm like, well, what'd you see? You know, we did that back and forth. We did that back and forth for a little while. And then I guess the first clue for Chip being up there trying to get a secure belay and, you know, and the rule of thumb, too, we broke every rule going out there. You know, it's three guys on a rope. That's what's safe. Not two guys on a rope. You know, there's no guy in the middle to help out, you know. So we didn't have that going. But in the end, I was up there. I jumarred up. And I, I couldn't get Jumars to go past anything. It was just like a wall of snow there, and, and, and I'm hanging. I'm just, I'm just dangling from the, from the rope there. And so Chip finally figures out that I'm doing okay when my ski poles come launching out, and one of my skis comes launching out and lands up there on the sky. And then the other ski, I wound up just kind of digging and shoveling and trowel and bludgeoning around and trying to get to where I could get my Jumars up from the air and the free rope and pushed into the snow, but I couldn't. There was no way to do it. I wasn't sure exactly what to do. And in the end, it was like, well, let's pretend this is a big horse, you know, and I'm, I've got my Jumars here and I'm hanging and I tied this, this loop. So if you're ever in this situation, this is what you gotta do. You can tie this loop <laughs> right under your Jumar and then you just gotta get your foot in it. And then it's like the biggest horse you've ever tried to get on in your life and swing and kick around and was able to stand up and kind of belly flop out onto that, onto that snow and relax a little bit and get the Jumars up and then manage to get off of the cantilevered bridge there. And that was probably one of the more closer situations where the, pu the pucker factor was way up. <laughs> way up at that point. But... We rerouted, we went around that little section, and then it was downhill, and we had the moraines of the Peters Glacier, and then we had the horrible depth whore. We, you know, you couldn't ski with your pack on. We had the one guy, one guy would go out without a pack breaking trail, and the other guy would catch him, and then drop his pack, and then that guy would go back and get his pack, and then this guy would go without his pack until this guy came and caught, and then we did that all the way to Turtle Hill, I think, and wound up only about five days behind our real schedule and wound up coming out to Wonder Lake and to Camp Denali. So we finished this, we, we called it there for the longest time, the Samex, you know, skiing around McKinley Expedition. But then we was like, no, skiing around Denali sounds better, sad, you know, it was the sad expedition. <laughs> instead of the Sam expedition. And in the end, it was like, no, starving around Denali. That's what it was. The starving around Denali expedition. Mike speaks. He shared that story at our April 2019 live event in Fairbanks. 
Thank you for joining us for the Season 5 premiere of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. Today's episode was edited by Ryan Peterson and myself. Story consultation by Lori Neufeld. Live audio recording by Alaska Universal Productions. The Dark Winter Nights crew and I had a busy summer, but we are back and excited to share a ton of amazing true stories from Alaska with you all. We're also excited about our next live event, on which the team is already hard at work. We'll be back live at Herring Auditorium on Saturday, November 23rd at 7 p.m. That's the Saturday before Thanksgiving. This show will feature the hot Denali Harps performing in the lobby before the show. They're an awesome local harmonica group, as well as UAF student vocalists opening up the show. Then things are going to get weird. I don't want to spoil the surprise, but trust me, it's going to get weird. But in a fun way, and as always, the stories will be amazing. If you have a story you'd like to tell, either on stage at our live event or here on the radio show and podcast, there's more information at darkwinternights.com. We're also on the Facebook, or you can email me directly at rob.prince at alaska.edu. Thanks so much to all of you who have been listening to our show over these past five seasons. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince.